The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, something a little bit different to start today's programme. Uh, today, UCC was able to announce that it is going to take receipt of the archive of the late Richard Harris for an exhibition in the university. Richard Harris was a 20th century Irish movie superstar, perhaps our big first Irish-born movie superstar, who had tremendous roles throughout his career, including Gladiator, MacArthur Park, The Sporting Life, which was his breakthrough movie in the 1960s, and then was much loved in Harry Potter. So the donation has been made by the Harris family, and I got the opportunity to speak to his son, Jared Harris, about it. Now, Jared Harris has become very famous in his own right as an actor. You may know him from things like Mad Men, and also from the brilliant role he played in Chernobyl, and many other things as well. So when I got a chance to talk to Jared Harris, I asked him what exactly his father Richard's archive contained. Yes, well, it's um, essentially it's a collection, an archive of um, all of the memorabilia that he kept throughout his life and his career. So it encompasses a professional and personal um, life. Um, there's thousands of photographs, letters, unpublished manuscripts, scripts, acting copies with his notes in, old posters, scrapbooks, letters to colleagues, letters to family. Um, I mean, it's an astonishing collection of, of, of stuff that he he kept. And um, basically when he passed away and we uh, sold his house in the Bahamas, we went through the house to go and figure out what we were going to send back home and discovered all this stuff that had been kept in suitcases and trunks. We had, I mean, just, we had no idea that he had kept all this stuff. And uh, in the interim period since then, it's been in a lockup uh, in storage. And we've always known that we needed to find a home for it. And we wanted that home to be in Ireland, obviously, but also in Munster, um, but for, for reasons you can understand. So, um, and it, you know, it took a little bit of time finding a home for it, but we, we've found the perfect place for it. This idea that he was a hoarder comes as something of a surprise. Um, <laughs> but then, I mean, for you, to ask, how much time did you get actually to go through the material and what, what was it like to actually find all of this stuff? Well, I've gone through probably about 80% of it and I went through a lot of it um, about 15 years ago and I was looking specifically for his poetry. But at that point, we were going to try and get a second volume of his poetry published. So I, I seen, I've seen a lot of it, and I'm obviously it's tremendously affecting. There's, there's a letter there that he's written home to his parents asking for help, and he's announcing his intention to marry my mother, you know. Um, uh, there's the, I remember finding the order of service to his wedding to my mother, and that was really, again, Obviously, very affecting because it, it was that marriage meant that much to him that he kept that, you know, even though the, the marriage didn't work out. Um, but their relationship was a successful relationship. They were friends throughout their entire lives. So, uh, yeah, it's, it is still emotional. You read stuff. Um, it's still very emotional. And um, there's pictures there from our family life when we were kids that I've 
forgotten, you know, and I look at now and they go, oh, yeah, that was the kitchen in Bedford Gardens. So, um, it, yeah, it's a wonderful little trip down memory lane for me as well. See, he had an absolutely extraordinary career. I, I know he was the fodder for a lot of tabloid coverage and celebrity coverage, but this actually, the fact that he kept all of these things also shows the sort of a seriousness of purpose and the writing of the poetry and the music that he did and the musicals. And as a businessman with Camelot, there was such an enormous range to him which made him such a fascinating figure. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's not a surprise to anyone who knew him, you know, family or friends. And I, it's also not a surprise that it is a surprise to everybody else and that's largely his own doing because he he promoted an image that the press was interested in in selling and and um and that was largely at the end to his detriment and him being taken seriously so um and then again that's obviously an intent behind uh, making this archive available to the public and also there's a documentary that my brothers and I have worked on that's coming out later on in the year and it's exactly to speak towards that point that, that there was so much more to him than, the, than what the tabloid newspapers tend to get stuck on. But also he had a remarkable sort of last decade or so of his career didn't he between the field which he worked with Jim Sheridan on mm. and got an Oscar nomination and then there's a whole generation of people who'll always remember him as the original best Dumbledore from the Harry Potter movies that he had this terrific end period of his career well yes although people tend to focus on the film side of it and actually um, artistically and creatively what was significant in the last sort of chapter phases of his life and his career was he he tours Camelot for almost a decade that gives him the, the the stamina and the theatre muscle to attempt the Pirandello play, and um, that is what really reignited him creatively. He was such a big character on screen. What was he like in private life? Was he the same sort of big personality all the time? Uh, I mean, in some ways, he was bigger because you have to tamp yourself down for the camera. Um, and you have to sort of, you know, you have to contain it. So in some ways he was bigger. I mean, you know, I, I've told this story before, but many a time he'd be in a restaurant and he'd be telling a story and he'd notice that the table next door had stopped talking and they were listening to him tell the story. So he'd shift his chair to welcome them into listening to it. And then that would slowly spread throughout the entire restaurant. So eventually no one's talking, <coughs> excuse me, no one's talking in the restaurant. And by the time he finishes the story and hits the punchline, the whole place would erupt in applause. Tell me a little bit about your consciousness growing up in England and in the United States of his Irishness. Well, I mean, it, his Irishness was tremendously important to him and he was incredibly proud of being an Irishman, and on and in many levels, when he arrived in London in the 50s, um, he encountered uh, prejudice, you know, and he, um, he directly fought against that, and I think that was one of the, the reasons why he, he, I mean, he waved the flag for Ireland everywhere he went, you know, um, and he was very proud of his, his heritage. Um, and he communicated that to us. I can't call myself Irish because I was 
you know, I was raised in England and I wasn't exposed to the Irish culture, so it would be, um, you know, it would be disingenuous for myself to call myself Irish, but I'm, as are my brothers, we're tremendously proud of that connection um, and of him. Did you never get dragged back to Limerick for holidays or never get dragged to Thomond Park for rugby matches? Going on holiday is not the same as as growing up in a culture, you know what I mean? So I do. You know, it's different. But, I mean, we we appreciated and we knew how passionate he was about it and we respected his connection. And, um, And we were obviously curious about his upbringing and his connection to the country. Um... And uh, I, w- I would describe myself as being of Irish heritage. But, you know, I, I can't claim to be Irish. I wasn't brought up in the culture. It's interesting that you and, I would like to. It's interesting that you and your brothers, though, are so involved in movies as well. You have one brother, an actor like yourself. But you, you've had terrific success as an actor. And I'm sure many of our listeners will know you from brilliant parts in the likes of Mad Men and Chernobyl, which was absolutely wonderful, and The Crown and the rest of it. What was it like to forge your own way as an actor uh, when you had a father as famous as Richard Harris? And... How come your style is so different to that of your father's? Well, uh, there's a couple of parts to that. Let me see. What was it like? I mean, uh, very early on, I had the opportunity to uh, meet Jim Sheridan and to be considered for the role of the son in the field. And both of us, Jim and I, were nervous of the idea because I didn't want people to to see that my first significant film role had been given to me by my father. And Jim didn't want people to think that Richard Harris was casting the movie. So, you know, that it didn't go anywhere. And I, I was aware that I had to forge my own way if I wanted to be taken um, seriously as an actor. And, you know, that took quite a long time. It took a long time for people to give up on the assumption that any parts that I'd gotten, I'd got because my father had made a phone call or something. Um, uh, what was the second part of that the question? Style, your style of acting oh, would be style. so different because you're, you're not the big presence in the way that your father was, but yet you have significant screen presence in a different way. Well, I mean, you have to play the cards you're dealt, you know? So I got dealt a different hand and, and I, you have to play that hand. Uh, I also think there's a different, there's a different, um, my father came out of his springboard to his success was at that moment when um, there was that uh, sort of real, the the realism of of the kitchen sink cinema and dramas, and he specifically was coming out of the the, the, angry young man genre, and there was a, um, there was an appetite for that kind of character and performance and if you approach stuff like that now, you'd be playing bad guys all the time, you know what I mean? Because if you're sort of, um, uh, you know, there's, 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 your, your acting style also, you're not fitting it to the times, but the times are going to respond to what's on offer, if you know. Okay. Tell us a little bit more, though, just to finish off, about the archive, because I believe the first public exhibition is going to be in the Hunt Museum in Limerick before it moves down to uh, the Boole Library in UCC in Cork. Um, so there's going to be an enormous amount for people to see here, is there? Yeah, I mean, it's really important to us that the first people who are going to get to see this archive uh, had to be in Limerick. So um, we're really 
grateful to Joel Cousins for making that possible. Um, uh, I, I don't know exactly when that will be because there's a lot of material that needs to be catalogued first and then Jill and Cronon will decide and Barry will decide what kind of exhibition that they want to put on. I do know that it's going to be interactive to some degree. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I'm excited about that possibility. It's very important out of respect to my father's, you know, his background and his history that that first place where that happens is Limerick. Just realising he's 20 years dead now, but clearly you're still very, very proud of him. Yeah, of course I am. He's my dad. I love him. I miss him every day. Jared Harris, thank you so much for joining us on The Last Word. Thank you, mate. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today,